Okay, this is the third and final part of a series that I've been taking you through about Hebrew thought uh, and why that's important as a Christian in the 21st century. And uh, really what this is all about is a fancy uh, Bible college term called hermeneutics. Anybody ever heard of the word hermeneutics before? And basically, that means interpretation, right? Interpretation. How do you interpret the scriptures? Um, when we talk about the scriptures and teach messages, you all ask me questions afterwards. I get them in emails. I get them in texts. I get them three weeks later. You know when you were saying that? And I've moved way on, and I'm like, what are we talking about again? And you're asking me a question about something that I said up here up front. And you're kind of, I get the questions like, how do you read the Bible that way? Uh, how do you see it the way that you do? Where do you learn this stuff? What do I read? And I try and give you guys resources, but that's what this series has been about, that we live in a completely other type of world than the original writers and hearers of this text. So when you ask me those questions about how, how do you learn this stuff and how do you read the Bible that way, what you're really asking me about is my hermeneutic, my interpretation. How do you read the Bible the way that you read the Bible? And so I'm going to really oversimplify it, but I'm, really, I'm just going to say that there are two questions that drive the way a person like me views the scriptures in their context. Number one is I ask this question, what did the author mean when they wrote it? Okay. What did the author mean when they wrote it? Not what did they say, what did they mean when they wrote it? Or if I'm looking into a teaching about Jesus in the God, if Jesus is the teacher and he's giving a teaching in the Gospels, what did he mean when he gave that teaching? And we're going to look at one of those examples today. Number two, what did the hearers hear when they heard it? Not what was said and they just heard that. What did they actually hear when they heard it, right? For example, you take a look at the book of Jeremiah in your Old Testament. If I could understand what he meant... When he wrote it in that context, if I can understand what the people actually heard in that context, then it would be really good because that's what, it, what was meant when it was said and what was heard when it was said. That is the gospel conversation. That is the authoritative, God-breathed conversation that's going on in how we interpret it. And only then can I take the discussion that's what did they mean and what did they hear? And then I could take it over here to 21st century us in America and go, okay, what does this mean for me? Does that make sense? You can't just forget about all that over there and just go, oh, I'm reading this and this is what it means to me, okay? And that's what people do when they say, well, my Bible says, to which I say to all of you, it's not your Bible. It's not your Bible, okay? It's our Bible, and that Bible is distinctly Jewish, okay? Does that make sense? Give me some nods. Yeah? Making sense? Okay, good. Because that's the questions that are driving... Hermeneutics is a science. That's the question. Those two questions are driving the science behind the preacher's interpretation, at least this preacher, and I hope a bunch of other preachers. I hope that's the kind of questions they're approaching it with. Otherwise, you get into all kinds of issues and problems that are not correct, okay? So, interpretations that aren't correct. So... I want to give you some examples. In the Jewish world, and the reason I talk about the Jewish world so often is because that Bible in your lap or that Bible on your device, it's a Jewish book. It's a Jewish book with Jewish authors, a Jewish audience, Jewish culture, English, Eastern languages, and the worldview they're speaking out of and the worldview that they're speaking into is Eastern. 
And it has Eastern assumptions, and it's rooted in an Eastern story. So as Westerners, we talked a little bit about this last week, we just want the answer. Read me the passage, preacher. Give me the three points. What's the point? What's the point, right? Whoever's talking is going to give a point, and then I'm going to try and make it compelling. And that's how I was taught to give a sermon. That's the way my wife was taught to give a sermon when we were in school together. There's a passage I'm going to preach on it. The first step I'm going to do is glean the proposition out of the text. There's a proposition, there's a supposition that's in there that I'm going to take it out of the biblical passage. And then I'm supposed to make three key points, a three-pointed sermon, right? Right? You're all tracking with me? Yeah? A three-pointed sermon. And all my points are going to start with Q. Not P. Q. Because that's awesome, right? And you're going to remember it. And you're all going to walk out of here and your life's going to, you're going to like relearn, you're going to learn something and you're going to like alter the way you live. Because it started with Q. Right? That's the way. So you're so compelled and you're going to live differently. An Easterner would never do that. They would not go, here's the proposition, here's the three points, now go live this way. They would never do that. And what that means is that your Bible would never do that because it's an Eastern book with Eastern assumptions. It would never do that. And your Bible, and that's why I like to end with questions or implication points instead of go apply this. You notice I never say, here's your application points. I just ask you questions because your lives are all different right? They're not the same. So why would I assume the same application point works for all of you, right? So because the Eastern world is not going to communicate in propositions, the Eastern world is going to bury deep down a truth in the story. And here's why. Because an Eastern thinker, let's put this slide up here, Eastern thinker thinks that if you're going to learn something, I could teach it to you and be like, here's the application points so you could memorize it. Or I could hide it. I could hide it deep down so that you go through the process of discovery and learning on your own and digging and keeping interested in it, never giving up your curiosity. The Eastern teacher believes that the process of discovery helps you to learn better and more intimately, whatever that truth is, rather than me just going, bleh, here it is. Now go home, go to lunch, and think about it a year from now, or whatever. The problem is not everybody is going, not everybody's going to go through this process of discovery, but that's the Eastern mind. When, when Jesus says, here's a story, and then he doesn't say, here's the wrap-up points, what does he say? We talked about it last week. He says, he or she who has ears, let them hear. That's what he says, okay? So Jesus' disciples in Matthew, they say to him, Jesus, why do you teach in parables? In essence, he then quotes Isaiah, and he says, I teach in parables so that they won't understand me. Go look it up, seriously. He goes, I teach in parables so that they won't understand me. Why? Because Jesus is Eastern. He is not Western. He is Eastern. Why do you teach in parables, Jesus? Because I am not here to make it easy for you. I'm not here to spoon-feed you, okay? Do you want eternal life? Do you think the answer to that is just floating around on top on the surface? Like, well, I'm just going to glean that off the top. No. I teach in parables because only if you want it are you going to dig deep and go after it. And then you're going to find it. So, 
Eastern teachers, Jewish teachers, rabbis, they would use this thing called the Pardes Method. The Pardes Method. I'm borrowing from a guy named Ray Vanderlaan. Anybody ever heard of him before? Ray Vanderlaan, he has a video series called That the World May Know, and he takes you through a lot of this Jewish stuff. Um, the, it's split up into four categories, the Pardes Method. The first one is Peshat. Everybody say Peshat. This is surface-level reading. This is most of the sermons that I've ever heard where they skim the surface, they give you a few word studies, and then they go, okay, here's your application points. It's right on the level. It's most Bible studies that I've been in as well. And that's fine. There's nothing wrong with Peshat. There's nothing wrong with that. This is the method that I was taught in Bible college. It was the method that I was taught to refine in seminary. Deduce the proposition. It's basically... My thesis in seminary was Peshat and then a couple layers deeper, but a lot of it was just that. Okay. How many of you have lived with the Bible for 20 years or more? Wow. Okay, that's, that's a lot of you. Yeah, you know what happens when you grow up in community like that, that kind of community where you know the Bible? You, the, what happens is you feel like you get to know it. You feel like you get to know the Bible and what it says, and then you're kind of the one that gets to walk around like, I'm all mature, you know, and I know the Bible. And when you ask, ask that whatever Bible study question, I'm going to be like, boom, I got the answer. Boom, I got the answer. I can explain that to you. You tell us what the rest of the point is. But here's the problem. The Bible doesn't work that way. Jesus is not like, here's the answer. He's like, here's a story. He who has ears, let him hear. It's not like, here's, 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 here's a hard one. It's not like the more you know your Bible, the better you are. Ouch. I know this. I'm going to reveal something to you. I'm not good all the time, and I know the Bible really, really well. <laughs> okay? So do many of you. Um, it's not the way it works. If you know your Bible, if you know the Bible, the smarter you are. No. If you know your Bible, the closer you are to God. No. That Peshat learning is just on the surface. So you can know all this stuff, but that doesn't make you closer, smarter, better, right? There's a spiritual formation process that has to go on as well, and that's for a different sermon, but it's not the way the Bible works. God does work on this level, though. God works in all the levels I'm going to explain to you. Here's the deal, though. The Bible keeps on opening up and going deeper and wider. And it has all these fingers and threads running through it. The longer, here's how it really works. The longer you read it, the more in wonder and in awe of God you are. That's what Jesus is after. That's what the Eastern mind is after. The more that you just converse about it and dig deeper in it, the more in wonder and awe of God you are. Not the more knowledgeable you become. Not the more knowledgeable you come, become. The next, the next level after Peshat is remez. Say remez. This has, carries with it the Hebrew idea of hint. How many of you have been reading along in your Bible and you're like, something odd about this. I've read my Bible a lot of times and I'm like, this is weird. This doesn't quite fit. Um, it doesn't seem right. There's got to be something else. So then you're like, okay, I'm moving on to my, my study Bible or something like that. Or I'm going to look up online um, at Bible Gateway. I'm going to get into one of the commentaries. I'm going to try and read a little bit more about this because I don't quite get it. The Western world has told us that when there seems to be some kind of inconsistency or something that you're like, what, what's going on here in the text, that I need to explain it away. I need to find an answer for it. We want to resolve it, Right? 
Those aren't inconsistencies in your Bible. No, 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 no. Let me resolve that issue for you, okay? The remez, part of pardes, the remez is a hint, meaning that it's not an inconsistency. The author who wrote it to you, who wrote it to his original hearers, there's a hint in the text. There's something in there on purpose that they've buried that they want you to find. They want you to, they want you to get closer into the text so that you're like, hey, wait a minute, that's not right. What's going on here? And the author is like, I'm saying this, but I want you to look over there. I want you to look way over there. The author put that in there on purpose because they want you to run into something underneath. They want you to look deeper. They want you to start reading in between the lines. The next level is called drosh. You say drosh? Drosh. There is a truth hidden in the story. The Hebrew root word for this is to uncover or to inquire, to unearth, to dig out. Drosh, okay? It's the truth that's hidden in the story. Jesus, why do you teach in parables? Because there is drosh hidden in there, folks, okay? The last level is called sod. Say sod. Looks like sud, but it's pronounced sod or sud, okay? And sud is mystery. You cannot learn this, okay? You can't learn it. It's connected to the whisper of God. God has to reveal it to you. I cannot teach it to you. It's something that comes directly from him. When Peter had his great confession, what is Jesus' response when he says to Jesus who you are? Jesus says, Peter, son of John, blessed are you, for man has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. That is sowed, okay? Another one of the Gospels asked this question, why do you teach in parables? And Jesus answers, because, it has, because to you have been given the mysteries of God, because God has chosen to reveal his sowed to you. This is how the Eastern mindset works. It buries these things, these truths. So I want to show you an example of how this works today. And I want to use a parable that most of you are familiar with. How many of you are familiar with the parable of the Good Samaritan? By a show of hands here. Raise them high, folks. Okay. I mean, what are you afraid of? It's just your hand. Put it up. Okay. We've all heard this parable before. I can't tell you how many brilliant sermons that I've heard where the point is essentially you, you, preach, the, you preach the parable of the Good Samaritan and you're like, okay, so just make sure that you stop on the side of the road and help a person with a flat tire. Right? That's where it ends up. It's something like that. It's like something like very Peshat level. Okay? you got to help all people with flat tires or something like that. There's nothing wrong with that. It's fine. But I want to read the parable first, and then we're going to ask some questions. Okay? So dive in with me. Look at it on your device or in your scriptures or up on the screen. Verse 25 in Luke 10, here's how it begins. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, put Jesus to the test saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, this is Jesus saying back to the guy, You've answered correctly. Do this and you will live. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance a priest was going down the road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, 
passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. And he went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine, and then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him. Take care of him, and whatever you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? He said, and this is the guy who's asking Jesus the question, he said, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. What were the two questions we started off with at the beginning? Now, the questions that I say that I ask when I'm dealing with my hermeneutic. Yeah. What did Jesus mean when he taught this? What did he mean? Now, what did he say? What did he mean when he gave this story? And the second one is, what did the hearers hear when they heard this story? So those are the two questions that I'm approaching. This is my hermeneutic. This is how we get to the, my interpretation, all right? When we dig into this a little bit, we're going to discover a few things. I want you, you know this story, but don't race to the end. Don't go, okay, he means help people, you know? We, we want to get to the point, and I'm asking you to say, no, stop for a minute and enter the world of the conversation that's going on here because there's a couple things that we need to unpack contextually to understand what Jesus meant and what his hearers heard. So, in the first century, every Jewish rabbi had what was called his yoke. Say yoke. Yoke. You know, like, I'm going to put a yoke on the oxen, right? And they're a yoke, okay? Every Jewish rabbi had what was called a yoke, a yoke was a rabbi's set of interpretations. So when Jesus says, my yoke is easy and my burden is light, he's saying, it's easy. Chill out. I'm going to show you how to do it. Okay? It's a, a yoke is a rabbi's set of interpretations. It's how the rabbi interprets the text. And every single rabbi had it. Okay? Every single rabbi, without exception, had the exact same greatest commandment in their list. If you wanted to know a rabbi's yoke, back in that day, how he interpreted the scripture, you would walk up to the rabbi who had just traveled into your village or your town, and you would say, Rabbi, what is the greatest commandment? Because how he answers this, you're going to understand what his yoke is, how he interprets the scriptures, right? Every single rabbi answered exactly the same. What is the greatest commandment, right? They wouldn't disagree about it. What is it? It's in the Shema, the Old Testament, Deuteronomy. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your strength. That's the number one commandment, right? You all know this, right? Okay, it's the Shema. When they what they disagreed on was commandment number two. They disagreed on commandment number two. And there were two schools of Jewish thought. There was one over here and there was one over here. You might want to think about it, you could think about it about here's conservative and here's liberal or something like that. It's just two different interpretations, Okay. The conservative one, there were two schools of thought, was centered around a, a guy named Rabbi Shammai. Okay, Rabbi Shammai, if you would have said to him, what's the greatest commandments, he would have replied as you expected, which was the conservative view. He would have said, the first one is to love your Lord your God with all your heart and soul and strength, right? And then his lens by how he interprets everything else is the commandment number two. And he would say, the second greatest commandment is to obey the Sabbath. Obey the Sabbath. Okay? Shammai's lens is obedience. 
obey the Sabbath. That's his lens. Okay? You read the whole Bible. You read all of Scripture through the lens of obedience. Then there was another rabbi, and his name was Hillel. Say Hillel. I like Hillel. Hillel, what are the greatest commandments? And he would, he, he would say exactly what you would expect. Number one is the same, but number two is not obey the Sabbath. What is it? Love your neighbor as you yourself, you flaming liberal. All of you. Because you follow Jesus, right? Yeah. Okay, so he says, love your neighbor as yourself. What's his lens? Hillel is saying, I read the whole Bible through the lens of love. Shammai says obedience. Hillel says love. Shammai would say, I obey, therefore I love. That's what Shammai would say. Okay. Hillel would say, obedience is very, very, very important, but I obey because I love. Right? Then Jesus comes along and inserts himself in the conversation in John 14, and he says, hey, if you love me, you'll do what? You'll obey my commands. Holy moly. <laughs> okay. That's the backdrop to our text today. And so this teacher, this expert in the law, as it says, what we just read, he stands up to test Jesus. This guy thinks he knows. He's not a lightweight. He thinks he knows. He's trying to put Jesus to the test. And he says, Jesus, how do I inherit eternal life? And like a brilliant rabbi, Jesus answers a question with a question. He says, well, how, how do you read your Bible? Is what he essentially says. How do you read your Bible? And he says, well, I read it like Hillel. Look at the text. Love your neighbor as yourself. So he says, I read it like Hillel, not like Shammai. And Jesus essentially says, good job. I agree. Right? And he thinks he's painting Jesus into a corner, but all of a sudden he looks like an idiot because Jesus is like, yup, that's right. Love your neighbor as yourself. Because he stood up to test Jesus and Jesus put him in a corner and he's like, yeah, that's a good answer. He's like, how do you interpret it? Are you guys, you know, judo, rap, rabbinic judo or whatever they're doing here. And that's what's going on between these two, okay? The next line is what's always confused me, right? He says, but seeking to justify himself. Why does he need to justify himself? Has that line ever bothered you? Because he's like, yeah, I get it. And then he's like, but seeking to, well, what did he say that was wrong? Because Jesus seems to agree with him. But then he's like, I got I to gotta justify myself. You know, he wanted to justify himself because he looks like an idiot in front of all these people that are sitting around watching the little duking it out. All right. So he says, "Okay, Jesus, he's like, I'm going to get you now. Then who is my neighbor? Who's my neighbor? Who do I have to love? And that's a lightning bolt of a question. We just don't know that because we're Westerners. We don't know what's really going on here. It's an earthquake type of question. One of the eight great rabbinic debates of the first century was, who's my neighbor? Who's my neighbor? And they're all going around, what does Hillel say? What does Shammai say? What does Jesus say? What does this guy say? How do I love my neighbor? Who is my neighbor? All right. And so the Torah says, I have to love my neighbor. The Torah says it. Who is my neighbor? Who do I have to love? Because we've been conquered by people and people are always coming through and we've been taken away in slavery. Do I have to love these type of people? And what would Shammai say? If you go to Shammai, who do I have to love? Do I have to love a Jew, Shammai? Yes, of course you have to love a Jew. Yeah, 
They're your brothers and sisters, of course. Well, Shammai, do I have to love a Roman? The Romans are violent, brutal oppressors. They are your enemies. You do not have to love a Roman. Remember, his lens is what? Obedience, okay? And then, do I have to love a Samaritan? Are you kidding me? Those filthy, half-breed, vile dogs. Why are you even asking the question? Shammai would say, no, you do not have to love a Samaritan. What would Hillel say? Well, Hillel, who do I have to love? Because your lens is what? Love. I obey because I love. Do I have to love a Jew, Hillel? Yes. I need to, I need to, you need to love your brothers and sisters. Do I have to love a Roman? Yes. The Torah would say that they are your neighbor. You have to love a Roman. Ooh. Ooh. I have to do what? Do I have to love a Samaritan? No, those mud, blood, dirty dogs, you do not have to love a Samaritan, says Hillel. Okay? So this expert in the law opens up this cat five hurricane question on Jesus. Who's my neighbor? And we're like, oh, who's my neighbor? Duh. Because we know the answer. We've already gone to the end. We know the proposition. I have to love everybody. I have to love my enemies and that kind of stuff. Jesus responds to his, his question, who is my neighbor, in a beautiful rabbinic fashion. Does he tell them the answer? No. He doesn't tell them the answer. He tells a story. So that's part of our background. Here's the other thing you need to know about the context. Jesus is not the first person to invent the parable. He didn't invent the parable, okay? There were parables. Rabbis were telling parables all the time. You can go look them all up, okay? When a rabbi told a parable, there was one template for their, par for their parable storytelling that was used over and over and over and over again more than any other. And you know what the equivalent of it was? You know what it was? <laughs> it's basically a rabbi and a pastor and a Catholic priest walk into a bar. <laughs> I'm not kidding you. That's, it's, seriously, that's what it is. That's the parable temp template, okay? That's <laughs> what it was. There's always the same characters, a priest and a rabbi. And a <laughs> yeah, so the first one is always a priest, right? right? Just like in this, it's a priest. And the priest in their template, in the Jewish rabbis telling of parables for all, whatever they're trying to make their point get across to have you go deeper, the priest always gets it wrong, right? The second person is always a Levite. And they're going to follow exactly in the footsteps of the priest. And they're going to get it wrong. You know what the third person is? What is it? No. Next slide. It's a Pharisee. And the Pharisee always gets it right. The Pharisee always gets it right. The Pharisee is going to do it correctly. So this expert says, yeah, Jesus, who's my neighbor? <laughs> I got you now. Whoa. You know? He thinks he's got him nailed. He thinks he's got him painted into a corner. And so does everyone else. What a good question. And Jesus, at the drop of a hat, says, well, let me tell you a story. There was a, there was a, a priest and a rabbi and a minister <laughs> walk into a bar. And they're all like, oh, not this again. Not this again. I know how this is going to end, right? Everybody's listening like, I know where this is headed. The priest walked right on by. Of course he did. The Levite walked right on by. Of course he did. The Pharisee, the what? The Samaritan? The Samaritan? 
Along comes a Samaritan. You want to know what just happened? Let me show you a clip. Let me modernize this for you. Okay, let's just, just take a pause, turn down the lights for a minute. I want to show you a clip. Uh, you know I love movies. Let's just have a little modern moment here. This is what happened. Love it. Okay, let's stop. That is just, well, let's turn the lights back up. Yes! Boom, boom. Yeah! You know? He's like, that's Jesus. He's like, what up? Where's your game? You think you can fight? <laughs> you can't do anything. The bullets just drop. And the whole space-time continuum of reality is like, I control it all. And you think you're going to win this argument with me? Along comes a fair, a what? A Samaritan. You could have heard a pin drop. Shammai, do I have to love a Samaritan? No. Hillel, do I have to love a Samaritan? Heck no. Jesus, let me tell you a story. It's amazing. I don't know if you're catching on to what Jesus is doing here or not, but Jesus is engaging in a rabbinic debate, a judo match of the mind and spirit, okay? He is cornering an expert in the law, being tossed into a second tradition rabbinic debate. He, he tells this story where he hijacks their everyday template. Everybody is used to that. He subverts it and at the same time gives the most radical teaching on who is your neighbor that they have ever heard that they have ever heard. You ask any Orthodox Jew today, today, that is trained in the text, and they will tell you to this day that Jesus' parable on the Good Samaritan is one of the most brilliant parables that was ever told. Ever. And these are people who do not believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Messiah. They don't believe it, and they're like, that's the most brilliant parable we have ever heard. Even they see how brilliant the parable is. It's like unbelievable what he did. But guess what? Somebody say what? Thank you. Darius, where are you? What? Come on. <laughs> where does Jesus get this material? It's already in the text. Did you know this story is already in the Bible, in the Old Testament? Go to Second Chronicles chapter 28. The story is about the king of Samaria who goes down to fight against the king of Judah, Ahaz, and God gives him victory because he's so frustrated with the people of Judah. And the king of Samaria takes all these prisoners and humiliates them, and he's carting them back home. And he catches word from God that God is not very happy about this. God says, listen, I gave you this victory, but I was not all about taking all these people prisoner and humiliating them. I am not okay with you doing that. 
And this is what it says. It says in verse 14, 2 Chronicles 28, So the soldiers gave up the prisoners and plunder in the presence of the officials and all the assembly. The men designated by name took the prisoners, and from the plunder they clothed all who were naked. Starting to sound familiar? They clothed all who were naked. They provided them with clothes and sandals, food and drink, and healing balm. All those who were weak, they put on donkeys. So they took them back to their fellow Israelites at Jericho, the same dang town, okay? The city of Palms. And then they returned to Samaria. Oh, my goodness. This guy is brilliant. And I know what you're thinking. You're like, yeah, he's brilliant. He's Jesus, right? He's Jesus. He's the Son of God. Do me a favor and just turn off your Christian doctrine button for a minute and realize how awesome this is. Because it's awesome, okay? Just turn it off and see it as a person standing there in the moment watching this go down. Do you see all the things happening in this? You see the Peshat, the surface level stuff. Be kind, don't be a jerk, change people's flat tires, help people. What's the remez? The remez, the thing that's buried, is the Second Chronicles 28. What's the drosh, that even deeper teaching? I don't know what it is. You've got to spend years on this. You've got to spend years on this. And any, any preacher who's going to get up and tell you, oh, the deep, 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 deep thing behind that, if they start telling you that, they better know their stuff. You better, like, look at them a little bit sideways. Because I don't... That's, you're trying to like speak really deep there. It's incredibly difficult. We're not even going to get into the sowed because that's, that's a whole different category, right? The mystery. Jesus' Talmudim, his disciples, probably sat around the campfire for years. Remember when he talked about the good Samaritan? Tell that, tell that to this guy. He hasn't heard that one yet. He's going he's gonna to go like, he's going to go berserk. What did you just say? You see what the Easterners are doing? They enter into this story because Jesus does not give them a proposition. He gives them a story, and now they have to wrestle with it. They have to wrestle with the text. What happens when we preach a sermon and I tell you the answer and how to go apply it? Listen, at some point, you guys have to do some work. Right? At some point, you have to do some work. The Greek in us says, just give me the answer. But that's not what Jesus was doing with the parable. Go ahead and wrestle with that story, he says, for the next, like, decade. All right? Here's a thought. Sometimes the Bible doesn't want you to know the answer. When the Bible doesn't want you to know the answer, I think it wants you to pursue God. It wants you to pursue Him, not the answer. It wants you to pursue Him. So here are some implications, not applications, some implications for today. Number one, if you want to understand the world of the Bible, you need to work at knowing God. That's the hard thing. Don't get addicted to knowing about God. You need to learn how to know God. Amen. It's not knowing about God. Listen, I don't, I seriously, I don't care if you've got all your doctrine right. I mean, part of me does, but ultimately, no. I don't care if you intellectually assented to all the right beliefs, because you know what the Bible says? It says the, de- the, the devil believes. <laughs> he believes, and he shudders. 
your knowledge, like how much you know, and if you can answer the question when I ask the question and you have an answer for it, your knowledge gets you Zippo. It gets you Zippo. It's the wrestling. It's the wrestling with the text that matters, that's important. Number two, it's not a no to know. It just follows the first one. It's not enough to know what the text says. So even if you've been to a bunch of Bible studies and great classes and you've been in sermons and listened to preachers your whole life and you know what the Bible says, we want that text to get inside you, like to actually alter you on the inside. And you will do that for the rest of your days. What we want to have happen is a desire that burns inside you to get it in you, a holistic pursuit. Because in the pursuit is where you're going to find God. Look at this text from Jeremiah 23. This is what it says in Jeremiah 23. Let the prophet who has a dream tell the dream, but let him who has my word speak my word faithfully. What has straw common in wheat? So he's like, there's dreams and there's word. The, the, the straw part is the dream and the wheat is the word. And you want the wheat, not the straw, declares the Lord. Is not my word like fire? declares the Lord, and like a hammer that breaks the rock into pieces. If you want to know God, you need to have his text within you. You need to let it get in you. You want to accomplish big, big things for the kingdom, let it get in you and break apart the hard bedrock in your heart. Get the text in you. It's like a hammer. You want to burn the chaff away. It's like a fire. Number three, the third implication this pursuit of God is not about possessing the answers. The pursuit is about how badly you want to seek. I used to think the little sign that I saw everywhere, in fact, we have one in our house that says, life is about the journey. And it looks all cutesy and you find it in like home stores, you know, right? You find it on Etsy and on Pinterest and all over the place. Life is about the journey. And I was like, oh, that's so like, passe that's like what does that actually say if you replace it with pursuit life is about the pursuit it is if you put god into the equation that journey with him that pursuit of him this pursuit is not about possessing the answers it's about how badly you want to see how badly do you want to go fishing how badly do you want to do whatever your hobbit is how bad hobbit habit how badly do you want to do whatever your habit is it's been a while we need to watch it again honey lord of the rings it must be on my heart um the how badly is that thing? Do you, what is it? Do you like to go to the games? Do you like to be out on the water? Whatever it is, you need to travel. How badly do you want to seek? That is what the implication is. How badly do you want to seek God? That is what the Eastern mind is pushing us toward. Proverbs 2, right at the beginning, verse 1. My son, if you receive my words and treasure up my commandments with you, making your ear attentive to wisdom and inclining your heart to understanding. Yes, if you call out for insight and raise your voice for understanding, if you seek it like silver and search for it as for hidden treasure, then you will understand the fear of the Lord and the fire and find the knowledge of God. That's what we're talking about with implication number three. And the last one, I'm going to call the the band up here, and I'm going to call Mark up here in a minute, so we're going to take communion together. This pursuit 
of God, this of, of trying to find the hidden truth of looking for Him in the text. And when we don't find it, we're, we're, we're to pursue, pursue Him. It changes our posture. And this might be the most important one that we're of the four today, but this pursuit changes our posture from knowing to learning. I, I, to be honest with you, I ha- I'm just like you. I hear the story, I hear a text, and I'm like, okay, I know the answer. I know the answer. I know what it's going to be. I want to go tell them the answer. Or I want to tell them side. I get many of you come up to me, and this is fine. I love this. You come up to me, and you're like, yeah, you told that story, and we were on that text today, and I have something I want to tell you that I learned over here about some other piece of knowledge. What I'm really listening for is how are you pursuing God, not what do you know? I want to know what you, want, what, you, what you know, but how are you pursuing God? Because this type of pursuit changes our posture from knowing to learning. And I would say from certainty to wonder. And when you have that kind of pursuit, from certainty to wonder, and you're always trying to learn, it leads to worship, real worship. Really, wow, God, I am in awe of you. And that is why I sing. And that is why I praise you. And that is why I give you glory and honor. Any Easterner would look at our concepts where we've got our systematic theology and we've put it in a book and we now understand God because we know all the archaeology and all the other ologies. (laughs) They would look at it and they would rightfully say, I got one word for you. That's idolatry. Because you've put God in a box and now you think that you understand him. How audacious is that? You have made God into an image, is what they would say, instead of someone to pursue after a a continual mystery that is worthy of your wonder and your awe. God is bigger than our wildest imaginations. And when he invites you to this table for all the levels of meaning in that, That is what I deeply want you to sit with when you come here. Amen?